Though the books of Zechariah and Malachi are separated by about a hundred years in time, the concerns of the people are surprisingly similar, that of how to rebuild a broken nation. Above all, they have one overarching concern, which is, when is this wonderful, great, and terrible day of the Lord going to come when God will redeem us and bring all these changes upon us that he's been talking about for centuries? And this question still persists today. When is Yahweh going to send his Davidic king to redeem his people? Believe it or not, we'll answer that question in this episode. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson number 48, The Great and Dreadful Day of the Lord. And I'm excited to uh, teach this lesson. It's the final lesson of the Old Testament. We're, we've reached the end, and it's very exciting. It's, it's very rewarding for me. It's, it's gratifying for me personally to have studied the Old Testament this year the way that I have. And I hope that uh, those of you who've, who've gone through the year with me, I hope you feel the same way. Uh, I, I, I believe that I have a much broader understanding of God's plan for us, and uh, it's helped me to understand the other scriptures as well. So the Old Testament will, I believe, always be my favorite book of scripture, uh, and so I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity, and I'm grateful to be ending it the way we are. As we as we go forward, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what happens between the Testaments, and we'll talk about uh, how next year's lessons will look. My plan is to take the lesson topics from the new manuals of the church and take some of the scriptural curricula from the former manuals of the church. And the reason I'm doing this is that there are two priorities when we, when we study scripture. One is to learn about scripture, and one is to learn from scripture. Now, learning about scripture means things like the details of the Hebrew language or the details of the lives of the prophets or what was going on in ancient Israel at the time so we can understand what the prophet meant when he originally spoke. And learning from Scripture is saying, okay, now how does this, what what does this mean to me? How does it help me in my life? How do I get closer to God because I just read the Scripture? Learning about Scripture is something you can't really do on your own. You need someone to tell you, and and I need sources to tell me, what was going on? How do we how do we interpret the writings of ancient people, and so that we can understand them? Learning from Scripture is very much an individual thing, and one thing I like about the new Church Sunday School Manual is that it's very much focused on learning from Scripture. And what this means is the Church is putting it on you, on all of on all of the its members, and all of the Latter Day Saints to go out and take responsibility, and that's even the title of the first lesson, take responsibility for your own learning. So if you want to learn about Scripture, you're going to have to find some resources to do it. Now, obviously you can't separate, completely separate these two types of learning. So there always will be some learning about Scripture when you're learning from Scripture, and there will always be some learning from Scripture when you're learning about Scripture. Nevertheless, the, in my opinion, the focus seems to be very much on learning from Scripture, which is where it should be. So that's going to be the focus of the church's teaching. And if you want to learn about Scripture, it's sort of on you. It's your responsibility. It's going to be a home-centered program that you put together. 
And I believe it's a, it's a gap that this podcast will help fill for our listeners. And I hope that you'll send us your questions and feedback to gt at gospeltoctrine.com, how we can serve you in the ways that you want to learn. So for Malachi, let's, let's get to Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, the chapters that are covered in this lesson are in Zechariah are 10 through 14. Zechariah falls first chronologically. So uh, Zechariah, if you remember from, from last week's lesson, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of Haggai and the time of Nehemiah when the temple is being rebuilt. And, and Haggai, if you remember, I talked a little bit about his, his message was, stop building your own homes and build the temple. So this was in the generation following the return of the, the people of Judah from exile. And Zechariah was around the same time. So Zechariah obviously had some, message, some messages similar to Haggai's, which is we need to prioritize uh, building the temple. We need to prioritize the, the spiritual matters that concern a people that are, that are picking themselves up from the dust. But then Zechariah spends a fair amount of time talking about his visions of the far future. And we only know, the, here's the problem, we only know it's the far future because we have the benefit of looking back over thousands of years of history. The people of the time, the, the thing that uh, unites the books of Zechariah and Malachi is the people at the time didn't know how far in the future uh, the prophecies that they were hearing would be fulfilled. So the question they ask over and over again, when are these things coming? And during Zechariah, Zechariah's time, one of the questions the people were asking the prophet was, all right, we've been fasting uh, every, every year. We've been fasting in the fifth month for these 70 years that Jeremiah talked about, the 70 years of exile. We've been fasting for those 70 years to be over. Are, are we almost there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Zechariah. And Zechariah says, well, here... Here's what God has to say about that. Every time you've been fasting during the fifth, fifth month, you, you claim to have been doing it for me, but you haven't been doing it for me. And then Zechariah points out, just like every prophet before him, he points out the wickedness and the ways that the people are abandoning the laws of Moses. They're abandoning justice and righteousness. And so he points to the, the mistakes that exist in their comportment as a people and says, these are the kinds of things that keeps that keeps you in bond that keep you in bondage, uh, whether whether those seventy years are up or not. So the interesting thing about the the book of Zechariah is they keep asking this question: Is the time of the Lord near? They think as soon as the exile is over, as soon as these seventy years are up, all the promises that have been given over the centuries will then start to be fulfilled. So they think, oh, we rebuild Jerusalem. And then it's the, it's the new Jerusalem, as of course, of course they would think. Of course they're going to think that the time of the Lord is coming in our day. This is what, by the way, this is what every generation has thought that, that we can determine. Whenever prophets have spoken of a future day and they haven't said, well, you're going to have to wait a long, long time for this, people always think, oh, is it in my day? Uh, and you'll, you'll even see indications of this in Paul's epistles, for example. Uh, in the book of Thessalonians, Paul talks about, and this is a, a well-quoted scripture by Latter-day Saints, the, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you that the day of the Lord is nigh, the day of the Lord is at hand. 
because there has to be a, an apostasy first. Uh, and in, in the King James Version, it says uh, uh, the falling away. In on my mission, it's it actually used the word apostasia, which is apostasy. So the Paul is saying, Paul is addressing a well-known concern uh, among the people of his time, which is everyone is thinking the day of the Lord is at hand. And this was also true in Old Testament times. This was true in the days of Zechariah, and it was true about 100 years later in the days of Malachi. So Zechariah's response is, to, when they when they say, okay, are our 70 years up yet? His response is, why don't you, here's an idea, why don't you stop being like all the past generations that God had to uh, prophesy all of these punishments to? Why don't you be like the generations where God is promising the blessings to? Why don't you be like the people that God describes as living in the New Jerusalem? So Zechariah doesn't say, okay, here's when it's going to happen. What he says is, here are the conditions under which these blessings arrive. Very interesting answer to the question. Now, in our lesson, it's limited to uh, chapters 10 through 14, but Zechariah begins with a series of eight chiasmic visions, where the first and the last vision uh, have a a certain correspondence and so on. And then it only finishes with these chapters that we're talking about. And in between, there are a couple of chapters that I would add to the lesson, which are chapters 7 and 8. They're not too hard to read. And it's sort of Zechariah's response to the question. It's, it's what I've been talking about where he says, um, you want to know when the time of the Lord is. Well, actually, why don't you look at the way that you're behaving yourselves? This is the answer to God's question always. When, when, when are the times when, when is coming the time when you're going to finally fulfill all these promises that you made? The answer seems to consistently be, when are you going to finally be the people that I've described, the ones that and and there's there's not a whole lot that is brand new in today in the scriptures we're covering today that we haven't covered in scriptures before which is I'm going to change their hearts there's going to come a day when I will take the the stony heart and replace it with a fleshy heart I'm going to write my law upon their hearts the people will be the temple so this is a similar theme it's all it's always been repeated throughout the old testament and the prophets and so Zechariah and Malachi are no different. Now, in the books, uh, or in the chapters 10 through 14, this is a, I would suggest, a very important passage to read in a couple of different translations. Um, And chapters 7 and 8 probably fall in that same category, because you can, you start reading about the fifth month, and you think, man, I don't really understand what's going on. Are they talking about some ancient festival? And they're talking about the way they've been fasting in exile in Babylon. They've been fasting during the fifth month. And so it's good to get a little bit of commentary and understand that what's going on when they're questioning that. You kind of feel like you may be a little bit lost if you read it just in the King James Version. So in Zechariah chapters 10 through 14, there are a lot of things that we've heard before. For example, God is going to support Judah and Jerusalem and the people that are worshiping idols, for example, and praying for rain. He's saying you should pray to Yahweh instead. In the time of rain, pray to God for rain rather than praying praying to your idols. And then I'll support you and I'll punish the nations that threaten you. In chapter 11, this is a chapter about shepherds. Now you remember we've we've talked about the, the Old Testament developing this theme of Yahweh as the shepherd. And it began in the book of Psalms, but it continued through several of the prophets talking about how 
Yahweh is going to be a shepherd to the people of Israel. And this was why it was a controversial thing for Jesus to say, I am the good shepherd. Uh, It was quite controversial and considered blasphemous by many that he would call himself the shepherd because that was a role that had been reserved through so many of the prophets for God himself. So here in, in Zechariah, he actually engages in theater the way that other prophets had done in the past, Ezekiel probably most notably. Um, Zechariah goes out and hires himself out as a shepherd and works as a shepherd for an extended period of time. And he carries two sticks with him. One is carved on it, the word favor. And you can you could think of this word as meaning chosenness. It's the, it's the fact, it's a symbol of the covenant that God has with the people of Israel. He's going to make them, if you remember, he's, he's going to make them a nation of key, uh, a nation of priests and a holy nation. So, the other and the other stick that he carries with them is called unity. So, are the people united in their worship of God, and are they chosen of God? Are they wor- worthy of having God's favor? So he carries these two sticks with him, and he has some disputes with a few other shepherds. So he gets rid of three other shepherds in the period of a month, and then he tells the owners of the sheep, "I'm not going to watch these over these sheep anymore." And he breaks the stick called favor, and then uh, he says, "Let these." Let these sheep be slaughtered. Whoever whoever can kill them, let them kill them. And then he uh, tells the owners, pay me whatever you think I'm worth. And if you don't think I'm worth anything, don't pay me anything. And they pay him 30 pieces of silver. And the people, Zechariah makes this comment. He says, the, the owners of the sheep, they knew that through my actions, I was speaking from God. And so it, it sounds like they paid him far more than his services as a shepherd were actually worth. So he takes the money, God tells him to put it in the temple, and on the way he breaks the other stick called unity. Now, this is highly symbolic, and what that probably means is there's more than one fulfillment. But one fulfillment is is obvious, that God has been the shepherd over the people of Israel, and they've, uh, they've had terrible leaders, and they've also rebelled against their one true leader, which was God, and so they've forfeited his protection. But it may have other fulfillments that are less obvious, and it's, it's worth examining. Then Zechariah hires himself out as, again as a shepherd, but this time he is told to be a terrible shepherd, a lazy shepherd, a worthless shepherd. And he says, now look at these sheep. They're, they're going to be spoiled and, and killed by whoever comes along. And so now instead of representing Yahweh, he's representing the leaders that the people of Israel have chosen instead. And so he, he goes out and actually acts this out and then writes about it so that people can hear about what he's done. Very similar to what Ezekiel did. Ezekiel, if you'll recall, he actually, in Babylon, he, he lay on one side for close to a year and then he turned over on his other side. And these were each day that he, he laid on the street and ate food that he cooked there over dung. He represented a year that the people of Israel would be in exile, and then the people of Judah on the other side. So it's it quite uh, interesting what Ezekiel was willing to go through in order to teach an object lesson, and Zechariah, a similar thing. Uh, in chapter 12, again, God is describing the protection that he will give to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be a coveted prize in the middle of a bunch of enemies, and Jerusalem is going to be divinely protected, but the people will be filled with mercy towards their enemies. 
And in 13, he, talk, he starts talking about the fact that there will be a fountain in Jerusalem to purify the people that, that live there from all their sins. And there won't be any idols anymore. In chapter 13 is where the, the notable verse comes from. Uh, what are these wounds in thine hands? They, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. And uh, Latter-day Saints, and I think Christians in general, take this verse to me be an obvious uh, prophecy of the way Christ would live and die among the Jews. And it is, I would say, undoubtedly that, but it's not very clear that it's that. That is not the surface meaning of what's written here. I think we often take this this uh, scripture out of context and we say, oh, it's only about Christ. So here's what it's actually about. In the time of Zechariah, he's writing about these idolatrous prophets who live in the land of Israel, or Judah, and, and he's talking about the last days when God has changed the hearts of the people and they don't want to worship idols anymore. So along comes an... Uh, an idolatrous prophet and starts prophesying and even his own parents will turn on him. And so then he'll have to deny the fact that he's actually a prophet. He'll say, no, I'm, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer. I'm a, I was, I was taught to be a farmer from my youth. And then people say, well, where, where are these wounds that you got? And earlier in the chapter, it talks about somebody being wounded by his own parents. If he tries to be an idolatrous prophet and he says, oh, these are the, I just, I was just wounded at my friend's house. Right? So, that is the surface meaning of this passage. Now, um, does Jesus fit this perfectly? Was he a prophet? Did he have wounds in his hands? Did he receive them in the house of his friends? Yes. So, it is a secondary fulfillment that is quite interesting to, to put on top of an existing verse. And it's also, it's also important to understand what the original meaning was. So a, a Jew who read this would say, oh no, it's obviously talking about these idolatrous prophets in the latter days. And a Christian reading it says, yeah, and it's, it's also just as obviously talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a Jew and who was wounded in the house of his friends. So it has, uh, it's important to understand both of those meanings there. Finally, in chapter 13, uh, God talks about how two-thirds of the people will be purified and, and destroyed. and the, the, or, Sorry, the two-thirds of the people in the land will be destroyed, and then the remaining third will be pur- purified like gold and silver. And uh, if you've ever worked with, with precious metals, I'm, a, I'm an amateur silversmith myself, and uh, the way that gold and silver are purified is through intense heat and through... Uh, forces, also very powerful forces exerted in a small spot. So it, you can imagine that the, the, the processes that are used to purify and refine gold and silver when applied to people, that anyone who had been around this process would understand it's a very painful thing. It's, it's done by suffering. It's done by testing and trying. And even in uh, Zechariah even says, uses the words testing. And so the people being purified means they're going to have their faith tried to the extreme. And gold and silver are two metals that easily alloy with other metals, and it's difficult to separate them. So I think what God is saying is, I'm going to have to use these intense processes in order to separate the gold and silver from the the other base metals that they've been alloyed with. And I think that is... It has its fulfillment both in the people that will survive the testing and in the traits that will exist in those people. 
the people who choose to survive the testing and uh, let themselves be refined like gold and silver will also have to let the impurities be be heated and melted and purified away from them as well as the the people who are not gold and silver will have to separate from the people who are whether that means physically or spiritually or both uh, isn't isn't made clear finally the the final chapter of Zechariah. So Zechariah, again, chronologically is not the final prophet in the Old Testament. We're not sure whether the final book of the Old Testament chronologically is Malachi, is Joel, or is the prophet who wrote the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it also could be the book of Daniel was written was probably written after all of the rest of them, even though it's about a prophet and about events that occurred hundreds of years before. So uh, the Zechariah is a little bit earlier than some of these books. The, pro- the chapters of these uh, vision, prophetic visions of Zechariah have been very important to Latter-day Saints, and we, in fact, uh, place great store, and Joseph Smith pr- placed a lot of uh, store in what Zechariah said. And this is largely centered around chapter 14. So the final chapter of Zechariah is the, the tribulations preceding the, the second coming, what we would look at as the second coming of Jesus Christ, and what the Jews would have looked at as the coming of this Davidic messianic king. So the city will be, one of the things that will happen is the city of Jerusalem will be conquered and half the people will be carried away. But the promise of Zechariah is, I, Yahweh, will come and fight your battles the way I have in times past. And in this particular instance, God is going to stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of, there are certain specific events that are going to happen. God is going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two, and the people will escape in the valley that's created. And then a river flows from Jerusalem and gives life to all the surrounding countryside. You, you will remember that image from Ezekiel chapter 37, chapter 47, that we uh, studied just a few weeks ago. And then the land, the entire land, all the mountains will be leveled. This is an uh, an Isaiah image that every valley will be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. And in Zechariah, this is understood to be a literal thing. And the Jerusalem will then triumph against its enemies and to such an extent that all the enemies will observe a new festival. So now we've, up until this point, we've known about a few yearly festivals. There's the festival of weeks and the festival of Passover and the festival of tabernacles. And God is now talking about a new one, which is the festival of shelters. And he says in that day, anybody, any of the surrounding nations, and this isn't a Jewish festival, this is now a heathen festival. All of the surrounding nations who tried to conquer Jerusalem and survived the battle They're going to have to come to Jerusalem every year and observe this festival, the Festival of Shelters. And if they don't come, then he talks about the the diseases that will come upon them. Their flesh will rot away. And as I read this, actually, this is a a fun chapter to read, remembering if you've ever seen the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. When the ark is finally opened, certain people have their their flesh rot away right in front of them. And uh, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, 
their tongue melts in their mouth. You, if you read the King James language of how this happens, it actually, I, I think the, the movie makers had to have been reading this very chapter, the chapter 14 of Zechariah, because the, the way some of the people die in that movie is very reminiscent of what's described in, uh, in Zechariah chapter 14. But if you read it in a more modern translation, what it's describing is people's flesh rotting away through disease. And uh, so God described, Zechariah describes what will happen in the last days after the time of the tribulation is over and the nation surrounding Jerusalem are observing this festival of shelters. In Jerusalem itself, everything from the, from the bells on the harnesses of the horses to the cooking pots of the people all scattered throughout the, the whole town, everything will have carved on it the words holiness to the Lord or dedicated you know, we've talked a little bit about the word holiness. It means put apart. So dedicated to God. Everything is going to be dedicated to God. In other words, nothing will be mundane. There won't be anything that exists for a purely earthly purpose. Every, everybody will recognize that everything has a spiritual and a, a temporal meaning. And so even the cooking pots, even the harness bells will all say holiness to the Lord. Now, this is interesting. The final words... Of the book of Zechariah are there won't be any Canaan and that day there will be found no Canaanites in the temple and so what we as, as Latter-day Saints we read that we don't think anything more about it we think what it means is that unworthy people non-believers won't be allowed in the temple we don't think it means anything else but Canaanites were used as merchants when Jews didn't want to dirty their hands with the dirty with the dirty business of selling buying and selling uh, with, of, with commerce and so the, the word is Canaanite, but the implication is a merchant. So isn't it fascinating that the final words of the book of Zechariah are, in that day, there won't be any, basically, any money changers in the temple. When you read it in that light, you realize, oh, this is, this is once again, these things are not talking about always specific events in a specific order. These prophets, they, they, they're carried away in a vision of the last days. And rather than say, here is a chronological account of all of the events that will occur from start to finish of the second coming. This is what we want in the latter days. Oh, man, what is going to happen? And what order is it going to happen in? And what are the signs and how do we recognize them? Get more specific with me. But Zechariah wasn't trying to do that. What he was trying to do was describe conditions generally. So he was saying, oh, in the last days, here's what it looks like. It's going to feel this way, and it's going to also feel this way, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, but not necessarily in that order. So a lot of times we try to use these scriptures for a purpose which they weren't originally intended to fulfill, which is we try to, we try to get an accurate account of a blow-by-blow of, la- of the last days. Exactly how does it unfold? They weren't intended to do that. They were intended to give the ancient Israelites hope on why they should continue to worship Yahweh and and persist in their faith. So if if we use them for that same purpose, then then they will be just as good for us as they were for them. But if we try to use them for a different purpose, then we might be disappointed. So that leads us to the book of Malachi, which takes place about 100 years later, after the time of Zechariah. And by this time, the attitude is a little different than it was during the time of Zechariah. By Malachi's days, disappointment had fully set in among the people. 
because they had expected to return from exile, rebuild their city, rebuild their temple, rebuild their nation, and then it would be the new Jerusalem. They would begin to live this blessed existence that had been described to them in the scriptures for so long. And instead, they were having a lot of the same problems. There was poverty. One of the, one of the visions of Daniel that we didn't go over describes how Daniel prays a similar thing. Daniel's in, away in Babylon, and by the way, the timeline of the book of Daniel overlaps the timeline of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, so it's not like one follows the other. Daniel is in Babylon during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is actually uh, quite likely that Daniel's experience with King Darius is what prompted King Darius to finally put an end to the resistance to rebuild the temple. So that's just a side note. But one of the one of the visions of Daniel that happened even later than that, that we didn't go into, was Daniel praying, okay, are the 70 years over yet? These 70 years of separation of, of Judah from the land of Israel. And, uh, and God saying, look, Daniel, it's a little different than you think it is. It's not 70 years, it's seven, 70 times 7. In other words, Israel, yes, they're going to return, but their, their suffering will not be over. It's going to continue for some time. That was, uh, and so I thought I'd mention that. Daniel knew this. Daniel knew that they would return and they would be miserable. So they're still subject to foreign powers, one after the other, the, the Israelites and the people of Judah. And they're, they ha- they're having to pay tribute, and so they're very poor. So there's poverty, there's corruption, and there's drought. So not only do, do, are they having to give up what they produce, but they're not able to produce a whole lot. And then within their own system, within their own system of justice, the, the laws and the courts and the way the poor is treated, all these things are very closely dictated by the laws of Moses. And they're not following it, so there's oppression and wickedness. So Malachi is pointing all these things out, and everyone is saying, what's wrong? Why, why are we not living in the blessed time? And so Malachi, it's almost like he uses the Socratic method. He uses a series of questions and answers to teach a lesson here. And so the first, uh, they're called, often they're called Malachi's disputes. And there are six main disputes in the, in the first chapters of Malachi. And you'll remember the most famous for Latter-day Saints is, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. So the, the dispute is, will, will people rob God? And, uh, and then the answer, and then he gives the answer and he talks about why. Well, the first, the first of Malachi's disputes is God saying, the, the first three are sort of God talking to people, and then the second three are, are sort of people talking to God, or confrontations, let, let's put it differently, confrontations between people and God. So the first three are questions, the last three are confrontations. So the first one is God saying, I love my people, and everyone says, wait, how do you love us? What is your proof? How are you going to prove that to us? Because it doesn't feel like it. And as proof, Malachi talks about the fact that Israel has been chosen. And he says, look at the other nations. Look at Esau, for example. I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. Look at how Jacob prospered. And Jacob, as you know, was later re- renamed Israel. Look at, the, look at the nations that descended from Esau. Were they anywhere near as blessed as the nations that descended from Israel? No. God is faithful. So the, the fact that God has been faithful to his promises is displayed. And then the fact that Israel has doubted it all along sort of exposes them as the ones who are not faithful. 
That's the first dispute. The second one is, you're despising my temple. Wait, how have we despised your temple? Okay, here's your proof. You, you're bringing in all of these diseased and blemished animals, and I commanded you to bring the firstlings of your flocks. And what are you bringing me? The worst things, the animals that you would throw away anyway. You're bringing me garbage. And what's worse, the priests in the temple are not only condoning this, but they're participating this. And they're saying, yeah, it's fine. You don't actually have to worship according to, the, to what is commanded in the law of Moses. We're going to go ahead and look the other way because we don't care either. So Israel despises the temple. That's the second dispute. The third one is that Israelite men have neglected their responsibilities. And the, the question comes back, wait, what do you mean? How have we done this? No, we haven't. And so Malachi describes a pattern of idolatry and then adultery and then divorce. So what Israelite men were doing were, was they were following after idolatrous women, then they were divorcing their Israelite wives and marrying uh, idolatrous wives and then following their preferences to worship other gods. And just because they were, and Malachi was saying, just because you divorce someone doesn't doesn't make it okay what you're doing. Divorce doesn't absolve you from your responsibilities. You have, you have totally walked away from the covenant of God. And you've added to that idolatry and you're, you're perverting your people. You're destroying your people by doing this. So those are the first three disputes. Then Israel, Israel replies, wait, God neglects us. God has neglected us. Look at the way we're living. We're miserable and all of the all of the corruption and drought and poverty that I described. And God says, rather than say, uh, you know, no, I haven't. God says, I will send a messenger to purify my people. Now, this is where a little bit of controversy comes in. The word Malachi actually means my messenger in Hebrew. So, does the does the name of the book come from the a name of the prophet? We don't have a record of this being a proper name anywhere else in the Old Testament or in uh, contemporary documents. And so, one school of thought is that Malachi, the book, the name of the book Malachi was taken from this passage in the fourth dispute. I'm, I'm going to send my messenger, and so the book of Malachi itself is my messenger, and. It's going to, this messenger is going to purify my people. Now you'll notice a similar theme from the book of Zechariah. The, the people are going to be purified. And then what Malachi talks about is a faithful remnant that is going to receive the blessing. So this is very similar to what happened in uh, Zechariah chapter uh, 13. And uh, so anyway, the the messenger Malachi is is almost like the Davidic king, the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for. And so very much very much a Christ-like figure. Um, and then the fifth dispute is I need I need Israel, God says, I need Israel to turn back to me. And this is where this is where he says, Will a man rob God? I need you to I need you to start changing your behavior. And one of the ways he says this is in tithes and in offerings. And his promise is if you'll turn back to me, and uh, I think everyone listening could probably quote the scriptures. If you if you prove me now herewith and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour down such a blessing, there won't be room to receive it. In other words, 
God is promising the blessings of peace and abundance if Israel will follow the, the law of, in this case, tithing, but also in offerings, in supporting, in giving of their earthly things in order to support spiritual things. The law of tithing actually isn't found in the book of Malachi. It's found in chapter 27 of Leviticus. But this is where Malachi is prompting the people to actually obey it. Uh, which is a interesting, I thought, very interesting piece of trivia that we all think, oh, the the law of tithing comes from Malachi, but it doesn't. It's Malachi reminding everyone that they already knew about the law of tithing, and tithing means simply one tenth. And Israelites were called upon to to donate one tenth of their income every year to support the temple. One thing that I forgot to mention last week was that it was in the time of Ezra that Jews began to go to synagogue every week. In the Before the exile, Jews didn't actually have a weekly worship service where they would appear anywhere, have formalized prayers and scripture study. This began to be organized under the scribe of Ezra. This is why he's considered such a, an important figure, such an important prophet, almost on the stature of Moses, because he is the one who got them to start, in, initiated this practice of gathering in a synagogue. And this is now obviously a worldwide pattern in Judaism is that Jews go to synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and they have set prayers. They read through the Torah uh, in, in a set schedule. And it is believed, well, it's, it's for sure that this was initiated by Ezra. And it is believed that a lot of their practices, the way that they worship in synagogue dates back all the way to that time, which is quite a long time to preserve a collection of of worship practices. So uh, the point is that before that, worship meant going to the temple. And so the, it was the job of every Israelite to support the temple, even if they couldn't make it very often. And they were commanded to go three times a year to Jerusalem. Which takes me to another side note. Judaism is by far the most geographically defined religion, major religion in the world. And we don't think about that a lot, but Judaism is inextricably tied to the land of Jerusalem. They're commanded so many times in their scriptures to return to Jerusalem three times a year. Even in Islam, which is uh, probably extraordinarily geographically tied, they're commanded to travel once in their life to the birthplace of the prophet Muhammad. And uh, in most religions, there's not a whole lot of geographical requirements. You, you're supposed to conduct yourself however the religion teaches wherever you're at. And in Judaism, on the contrary, you travel three times a year to observe these festivals in a specific spot, which is the temple. And so that's what that's what the point of tithing was, is you have to support this temple not only by visiting it, but by your means, giving your means to it. And as Latter-day Saints, we do, the, we do the same thing. It is, of course, a very legitimate use of our tithing funds that supports the temple. And then we're also, uh, even though there is more than one temple now, we're geographically called to go visit that place as often as possible. We don't, we don't observe the same festivals that the Jews did, but we are called upon to visit a holy place and to support it with our earthly goods in much the same way. This is very similar to the Law of Moses. And the Law of Moses wasn't just concerned with temporal things, as we see. It was concerned with spiritual things as well. 
The final dispute of Malachi, the sixth dispute, is the people saying, you know, it's pointless to serve God because not only are we uh, not blessed, look at, look at how miserable we are. There are people who are wicked and they are blessed. Look at, look at the state of the, the happy wicked, those people who, who live a wonderful life. And, and we've seen this theme also in other books in the Old Testament, most notably the book of Ecclesiastes. And we talked about that uh, at great length in, in that lesson. Now, uh, the reply to this is not actually uh, a, re- a refutation that this is the way things are. This is, this is where the real point of the book is found. The reply to this accusation against God that you don't actually reward and punish people according to what you say you'll do. And God's reply is a story about the people who fear God. Okay, and what he says is, there, there are certain people who fear God and they choose to remember him and they get around and they talk about God and all their thoughts are, are caught up in God. And what these people will be rewarded with is a gift. And that gift is the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? That's God's entire response. So the people of Israel are saying, you don't, you don't bless us. You don't curse the people who are wicked. You don't bless the righteous. You're, and God says, there are some people who do choose to worship me and they will be given my word. Isn't that fascinating? So we'll talk about we'll talk a little bit more about what we can take from that in a second. But then uh, Malachi proceeds to his conclusion, which is he goes back kind of talking about the day in which his messenger will come from the fourth dispute, he, the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he talks about how wonderful this day will be for the righteous. And then Malachi talks about how it, it, he kind of gives a summary. So this book was probably written to be, uh, intended to be, the final book, the capstone, if you will, of the Law and the Prophets. He, he gives a little summary and he says, remember the, the words of my prophet Moses, and I'm going to send another prophet. Now, we, we as Latter-day Saints make a big deal about the fact that Elijah is mentioned specifically, and Jews also uh, Malachi talks about Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so Jews actually leave a, por- a plate for Elijah at some of their meals because they're looking for him to return as well. But another way to understand this is I'm going to send more prophets. The, the day of the prophets is not done. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be a prophet who's going to come. And, and he mentions specifically hearts. Now, if, if you have been paying attention the last probably two or three months, we've been talking a lot about how God is, in the days of the prophets, and the books of the prophets, starting with uh, Amos and you know, even before the, the days of Isaiah, the prophets have been talking about God is going to heal the hearts of the people. He's going to put in them a new heart. He's going to change their hearts, and one day it will happen that God will heal them. This is the new thing that God is going to do. And this is Malachi, this scripture is Malachi referring to that very thing. He's going to say, I'm going to send a prophet, and that prophet is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers. In other words, he's going to heal their hearts. And this is the original meaning, this is the surface meaning of this passage, which is the day will come when people will pay attention to the Torah, they will pay attention to the prophets, and I will heal heal their hearts. So as a cross-reference there, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36. These are all chapters that we've covered. This is, this is what Malachi is saying. Um, and 
in addition, it had this scripture obviously then has great meaning to us as Latter-day Saints, that we believe that Elijah appeared to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple, and that this this scripture had had very specific and very important significance, but it also has a general significance, a general meaning, which is that God is going to heal our hearts in the latter days. So that takes us back to the question we started with, which is when are the days, that the same question that the people were bugging Zechariah with, are these 70 years up yet? As our long suffering ended, when is it going to end? And for us now, when we study the second coming of Jesus Christ, for Christians, we say, okay, what form are these sufferings going to take? What events are going to happen? And what order are they going to happen in? And when is it all going to start? So here's the answer. Here's the answer that Zechariah gave. And if you want, and if you want to ponder more about this, read Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. So God doesn't say, okay, here's when it's going to happen. God said, what God says was, you think you've been fasting? You think this fasting that you've been doing in the fifth month is for me? It's not for me. You haven't you haven't been fasting for me. You've been fasting for yourselves. So let's not de- let's not deceive ourselves about what your purposes have been. You've been fasting for yourselves. If you want to fast for me, if you want to if you want to live the way that I've described, then here's how you do it. Isn't that interesting? Once again, God God didn't answer the question of when is this all going to happen. Instead, he says I've described the way that the people in the New Jerusalem live many times. Do you want to start doing this, this, and this? Would you like to live the way that they live? In other words, here's the answer to the question of when is all this stuff going to happen? It's going to happen when we choose it to happen. When we we have to choose as a people. And obviously individuals, there are individual people who have chosen all this stuff a long time ago. And each of us probably knows somebody we could say, yeah, that's somebody who's ready for the New Jerusalem. But God is saying, when you as a people are ready, you're going to bring me to earth. If you choose collectively to live in such a way that you resemble the people that I've described as living in the New Jerusalem, you have the law written upon your hearts. You are like a temple in which the presence of God dwells. You are the dwelling place of God. And no longer do you have a stony heart that I can't get through to, but you have a fleshy heart. So I've, the words of the prophets have penetrated your heart. Then you are living in the new Jerusalem. And I think we look, we look beyond the mark sometimes, which is to say we're waiting for some external force to come and change the world around us. We're looking for God to take away our free agency and say, or our moral agency and say, uh, here's the time when everyone's going to be obedient. And that's not what God meant when he said, I'm going to change them. What he meant was, I'm going to, I have infinite foreknowledge of what's going to happen. And I, God, am capable of waiting until people have transformed themselves into the people that I've been waiting for. And that's the day when I'll come. I, I'm going to change them by waiting until they change and by giving them all the conditions they need to be blessed for changing. So do you and I want to live in the days of the coming of Jesus? Yes, we do. Jesus himself taught us to pray for that. He said, thy kingdom come. In other words, we, I, uh, and this is the Lord's prayer that Jesus gave on, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, we pray for you to come and take charge of the earth. It's not something bad to pray for. You know, God, bring the last days. We want we want the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. And this is a very worthwhile goal. And in fact, it's what Jesus even taught us to pray for in every prayer. But how do we do that? We become the people that when God comes down are capable of being ruled by him. God doesn't rule by force the way earthly governments do. This is the lesson of the book of Daniel. God is not the beast that Daniel envisioned. God rules by 100% by meekness and long-suffering and gentle persuasion. And when we're a people who are capable of being ruled by that, who are capable of governing our own passions and without compulsory means, following the commandments of God, then God already lives with in the midst of us. So the the message of Malachi and of Zechariah is the the destructions and the the preservations and the miraculous events and the drama of the second coming of Jesus. And a lot of times in those dramatic events we lose track of the of the thing that really matters in the whole in the whole scenario, which is that when our hearts have changed, then we already live in the New Jerusalem. The timeline just simply does not matter. When God comes back to earth, it does not matter. Because as soon as you and I choose to live the way that he's commanded us to live, we are in the New Jerusalem together. And people join this New Jerusalem one by one by one. And eventually it gets big enough that God is visible to those on the outside. And those things will happen gradually. They won't, they won't necessarily just one day to the next, God says to a wicked world, here I am, and now a bunch of you are going to be righteous. So this gives, us a, this gives us a little task to do. Instead of asking God, when are all these things going to happen? We listen to God saying, here's how the people... Well, this is the reply of God to that question. I mean, we have it in our hearts, whether we ask it or not. And here's the reply. Here's how the people that live in New Jerusalem, here's how they live. Would you like to start living that way? Do you want to be in New Jerusalem? Live the way people in New Jerusalem live, and you'll be there. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.